Welcome to episode number 52 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring screenwriter Abby Morgan of the new film Suffragette, starring Carrie Mulligan, Brendan Gleeson, Helena Bonham Carter, and Meryl Streep. Suffragette tells the story of Maude Watts, a woman in early 20th century London who takes a stand with fellow women in the suffragette movement to legalize voting for women. Screenwriter Abby Morgan shares with us her writing process, as well as her take on women's rights in the United States, England, and around the world. And we also discuss screenwriters that inspire her, including Aaron Sorkin. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch a Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And remember, you can still have a chance to win a free download of the final draft screenwriting software by following us on Twitter at jogroad, liking our Facebook page, Jog Road Productions, subscribing to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions, following us on Instagram at Jog Road Productions, and by writing us a review on the iTunes podcast page for the Road to Cinema podcast. If you do all of the above, you'll have a chance to win a free download of the final draft screenwriting software brought to you by Road to Cinema and our friends at Final Draft. And now we join Emmy Award-winning screenwriter Abby Morgan as she discusses her writing process. And remember, screenwriter Abby Morgan's new film, Suffragette, opens in theaters in limited release in the United States on October 23rd. I wanted to start off by talking about your writing process in general, yeah. um, especially the history of doing some historical pieces, uh, Suffragette and also The Iron Lady. Mm. So when you're going through that, how do you find the voice and the dialogue of the characters since you know they're coming from a completely mm. different time period and... There's such a specificity to it. Yeah, I mean, I think with both of them, I mean, what was interesting was that certainly if you're doing, well, starting with Iron Lady, if you're doing a high-profile character like her, you know, and certainly a a character and a a woman who was surrounded by so many journalists, so many brilliant political minds, and so many of them went on to write memoirs, there's a lot lot to draw upon. And also with Thatcher, there was very clearly a number of interviews, you know, um, which was fascinating as a writer, but then, you know, subsequently was brilliant for Meryl because she really had someone to base her character on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, that was like having just way too much material and how do you kind of stuff it into a very tight dress, you know? And so one of the things I've sort of learned about biopics is that it, it, it's really hard to do the breadth of a life and you're looking for that specific, that kind of magical weekend or that extraordinary love affair. And it's certainly something that I think works when I worked on The Invisible Woman, which was about Charles Dickens' love affair. And in a weird way, it was a, it was a, a way of looking at sort of 13 years in Dickens's life. Um, the difference with doing something like Suffragette is that you're having to piece together something which, although recorded, it's spread out over several different um, sources. So it can be everything from you know, newspaper articles through to memoirs written by you know, Mrs. Pankhurst, etc., through to... Um, social history through to the testimonials of the women who went to speak to David Lloyd George to try and get the vote so you're constantly drawing lots of different material but what you don't necessarily have is the voice of the characters in quite the same way so for that um, you know for example I know when Meryl works on the character of Mrs Pankhurst she actually had to listen to recordings of her daughter 
um, to get the voice, you know, and her answer of, of Christabel, but who, you know, because, so that was kind of interesting. And I think in terms of getting the voice, I don't, I don't necessarily sort of think about it in terms of there is a kind of period style of speaking. I just, one of the things that was very moving when I was working on looking at some of the testimonials of working women was how contemporary their voices sounded. You know, actually, with the odd sort of adjustment of words here and there, yeah. it sounded like 21st, you know, a 21st century woman talking about working in a sweatshop or a woman living in a refuge talking about sexual abuse and violence at home or, or you know, a woman dealing with the kind of loss of her child in a custody battle. You know, so many of the themes that they were talking about, but more than that, their voices just felt very real. And it's sort of been my rule of thumb in general is not to worry about there ever having to be a voice you know I, I just character yeah I, I, you know I, and I, I you know I don't you know right back to one you know even doing something like The Owl which was a TV show I did set in the 50s I you know I, I'd watched lots of interviews and I'd seen there was a star to it but I worried less about that I had I, you know I inherently looked at my own mother who grew up through the 50s and I don't think her voice just particularly changed in any way and and so I sort of went back to just this belief that inherently you're just looking for universal truths and somehow that will drive through and even if it's a slight click and it sounds a little more contemporary than perhaps it would have been it's about just trying to get the authenticity of the character and the truth of the moment and that you know, it's, if it's alive for me now, then I sort of trust it will carry its way. It'll carry this piece of history to a modern audience. Yeah. When you're organizing your research, are you really doing it in a way where you're making binders of, you know, these are newspaper articles, these are things specific to certain people? I mean, certainly when I started out, it was like that. And I think particularly because, you know, I, I, you know I, was, I was writing in the 90s where we didn't have Google and we couldn't, you know, we didn't have the incredible internet. Only came, so you had to go to a real library. I had to go to a real library and I had to look at real books and I had to kind of, you know, use very archaic machineries to kind of scroll through old newspapers. And now, you know, with the tap of a button, we can pull up everything. And I think this is what's made, in a weird way, um, so much writing so dense and vivid because we can, you know, I can instantly become an expert on Mandarin and the, a small, you know, a small shop somewhere in the corner of China because I can look up and Google map it and very quickly gather information. Um, but and so I used to use those binders but you know now life moves on and I have researchers who work for me and actually things get much more distilled and I tend to read and put down very quickly and sort of I don't have sort of visuals around me very much I you know I and I, I'm I, because I do lots of drafts you know I'm always the what I always dream of being that writer who delivers the perfect draft you know I'm, when I meet writers and they say so my film got made off to the third draft I want to kill myself because actually you know, it's rare that I've done less than 15 full drafts on anything. And, and with, you know, Suffragette, partly because we had so much time on our hands, it took us so long to get the film financed and made, but partly because we couldn't find the story. There were so many drafts along the way that every draft you're picking up research. And then there's that incredible balance and checks when a film starts to get made and actors come on board and they start querying, questioning things you've done. and. Mm heads of departments come in and say, there's no way they, she would have been able to get off a bus like that in, you know, 1912. There weren't even buses like that, that, you know, you have to start to adapt. And so it's such an ensemble effort when it comes to building a piece that feels authentically rich. And, yeah. you know, I keep reading quotes like, and Abby Morgan's very fact-heavy film, and I think, oh my God, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually like anything. I always think, do you know the Carry On films? Do you know, fortunately, the Carry On, they were fam famous films that we did in the 50s and 
in, in the UK and they're all sort of slight comedies and there was one called Carry On Screaming oh was that like where Alec Guinness yeah yeah yeah, yeah and yeah. Um, yeah and it, Kenneth Williams and Barbara Windsor they were slightly kind of slightly saucy films and there's one called Carry On Screaming and there's a great scene where this kind of werewolf they find a hairy finger and from that hairy finger they build the whole wolf through this kind of mad sort of Hieronymus yeah. Bosch sort of bit of machinery and I always think that's a bit like writing you know all you really have is that little kind of hairy nub of information and you build the rest and so so much of what you know we did was that you know is, is try and find the authentic truth and try and find the facts but at the same time it's a film that's reusing real history and real moments of historical events but also trying to create this composite of of a working woman in the character of Maud. So it's a it's it's been a really interesting process because it's not been like doing any other historical piece I've ever worked on actually because it's been yeah. about nodding to the nodding to the past truthfully but at the same time having this kind of imaginative creative set of characters who who've really been born out of an amalgam of so many women and, and men from police officers to prison guards through to working class suffragettes through to the wives and ministers. It's sort of come from this sort of incredible sort of research, sort of boiling down to make it this kind of distilled soup. Uh, well, you mentioned doing so many drafts. Um, is that also in terms of like when a director comes on or are you doing lots of drafts? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it, you know, Sarah and I, I'd adapted Brick Lane for Sarah several years ago. And so we had a strong working relationship. So, you know, Sarah came to me with the material. I mean, it really varies often. You know, I'm adapting a book at the moment where I don't think the director will come on for a long time. And the same, I worked for a long time on Little House on the Prairie, which, you know, directors come on very late. So... Um, but with this project, it was it you know when you have a relationship and at source where you start working together, then it's great because you're also working towards a shared language, which which can then translate to the set. And so so much of what you're doing is that you you start to understand and share a kind of visual language. So that actually a lot of it by the end is you strip right back because inherently you're holding it. You know, Sarah's holding it in her head and, you know, she know by the time we've actually written that scene on Oxford Street, we've done every version of it and we know what we can afford to shoot and we know what's actually going to be able to work. And we've choreographed its way through, so it becomes incredibly bespoke to that director and that shoot. And I really like that way of working, actually. I mean, in a, but so you're not a writer who likes to be isolated and just... Sort of I, you know, I'm, I'm basically a kind of yeah. very social introvert, so I love sitting in my pyjamas all day and eating and you know eating food on my laptop but I need to go out and I need to meet people and so it really suits me that kind of relationship and no I mean you know one of the things I think that hopefully films keep you know I think a way to keep getting your film made is to keep the dialogue going because one of the frustrations of being a writer is that you know all of us well I certainly am you know one glass of wine and I think I could be a director and the fact is I couldn't you know I can't stand up and make a talk to a crew I think directors have that gift and certain writers have it but I'm not one of them so really the only way I'm ever going to get my vision made is to allow the director's vision to breathe yeah. and be the bigger and so I'm constantly working to that I don't know what it seems like in Europe just in general not yeah. just in England there's more of a of a dynamic of the screenwriter and the director develop the material together whereas in the United yeah. States it seems like the screenwriter and the director are so separated and even once the movie is about to go into production whether it be in studios or yeah. independent films 
the screenwriters sort of the first writers push aside they bring on more writers and there's yeah. really sort of a lack of communication I don't know if that's something that well, you know, I think I work really closely with a director partly because I don't want to get thrown off, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, most films I've been on, I've been thrown off at some point. You know, I think when you, I mean, Suffragette and Shame and A Handful, I, I've managed to hang on in there. But, you know, most of the bigger Hollywood films I've been bumped off at some point. And so it's pretty brutal. But, and, and, you know, the nature, I think that's why so many film writers go to TV. You know, TV for a writer is... TV, you, you know, a writer's ultimately God and they just don't get pumped off in the same way. Whereas yeah. film, you get paid per draft. And so you know that moment where you come in and someone says, thank you for your work. And you can see the other writer coming in through the door. So it's pretty damn brutal. Yeah. Um, it seems like a better result if the screenwriter and the director are developing the material throughout I mean, I think it's like, I I, I, again, it's a bespoke suit thing. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think sometimes there are wonderful marriages. I've had good marriages where a director's come on relatively late, but the, the material's been robust enough and vivid enough and clear enough for a director to really get what you're trying to do. And, um, and you know, there are some films that you're passion projects. I'm, you know, and there are some projects you do for the money, and I'm trying to learn to do that a bit more because, for me, everything becomes a passion project, and so therefore you get your heart broken too much. So... And, and so, you know, part of the reason why I love, I do keep working in the UK and I certainly keep working with a lot of directors I know I can have that relationship with from the start is that um, you get your heart broken less, yet you absolutely make it a bespoke suit and you can be creatively involved right the way through to the end, right the way to, through being set and feel like you're an important, valid voice um, in the way that I think as a, a writer and certainly a producer I do in television and, and what becomes harder the older you get and the more experienced is it is difficult to, to kind of turn down your torch in, in film and pretend to be less and so yeah. that's why you get tougher about going okay I'll do this as a writing gig I'll do this as a money gig because you're so used to flexing this other part of the muscle which is being involved in casting and discussing all the, you know discussing creatively how it's going to yeah. look with every HD it's really weird when you go back and go back to the kind of Hollywood system of the way they treat writers um, which is like you are a writer to hire and why would you want to go on set and why would you want to know who's cast in your movie you know and, and why would you even call it your movie you know because it's not your movie it's ultimately the studios and the director so yeah. it's a balancing act I think between you know doing those films you love and can be passionate about and forging those relationships and finding a way to do those other movies where um the system will always be bigger than you. Yeah, if you're working with someone like Steve McQueen, how yeah. collaborative is he through the production Hugely process? Hugely collaborative. And, I mean, he's yeah. fantastic. Again, he's, you know, he's a fellow traveler, and, um, you know, that was that was a great project for me because it was great. You know, we literally wrote that in another country, and so that was sort of extraordinary. He lives in Amsterdam. I live in London. We met in New York, and I really love doing that project, and I I really love working with him, and. He, but he's he's absolutely an artist, and you know I was kind of in awe of his talent, his ability to. He started as a painter, or was he? He's um, not no conceptual artist, uh, an artist. I yeah. mean, he's an amazing. I think he started out as a great drawer actually, and mm. now you know, and he does. But he, his filmmaking has always been key to his his art, and you know what's extraordinary about Steve is that his art is still and you know is as important as his filmmaking and they inform each other so brilliantly so yeah the compositions he uses in his films are incredible yeah they're incredible I mean yeah. you know and, and I, that's what I found you know that was what was buzzy is to be able to is to be able to watch you know what probably looked like nothing on a page become something quite incredible with him and I think again that you know part of being a writer is giving up your own ego and 
and, and, and forming a relationship with a director where you can pack your own ego away because you know that they've got you and they've got what you've written and so you know that you can give them as little as possible to do masses with, you know? Yeah. I mean, I always remember someone saying, one of the first directors I worked with looked at a script of mine and said, okay, you've got eight images, I can shoot two. Which ones do you want? And that was a real lesson for me about kind of going, okay, you're going to hold the camera, you're going to shoot the images, which is the images that I need to tell the story. And, you know, both with both Sarah and Steve, I think probably what slightly links them is that they're both incredibly poetic and they both have a real simplicity of image. And as a writer, that's a really great brief to work for because you know that they know how to capture a world, but you know they're going to know how to focus a sort of theme um, and or even a character through something very simple and poetic, which I think, you know, just, you know, if you look at Steve, that brilliant image in Hunger where he's washed, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, where he's yeah. washing his bloodied knuckles and he's, you know, it's, I mean, that would look like nothing on the page, but... It, it suddenly becomes so symbolic, it works on religious levels, it's got everything going on in there, and I think that's the brilliance of that director. And, 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 and largely, Ender as a writer being able to play to his strengths. Does that teach you also to be more concise when you're writing and know that sort of in screenwriting you can be simpler, you can just I mean, use I love, to push forward? You know, I'm, I, I mean, I'm, you know, one of the, I, I read screenplays way more than I read novels, and so, you know, I'm. Other people's screenplays? Yeah. I read them all the time. And, you know, I'm a hugely admiring of, of those screenwriters who just have a beautiful, simple voice, you know. Or, or those who just can set it, like Paul Schrader's an amazing script. I mean, the screenplay for Taxi Driver is sublime. Or Peter Strawn, who's done Ticker Taylor, Soldier Spy. I think he just did Obrander's Crisis. He's, he's got such elegance and yet yeah. such efficiency in the way he lays out stage directions. You know, Arnold Wesker, the playwright, always said... Um, the writer is director and the stage directions, and I think about that. I never know if they're called stage directions in a film script. The film, I never know what they they call the bits in between the dialogue. But um, um, you know, I love. I mean, I love the physical look of a screenplay on the page. I love looking at the way of just visually looking at the shapes of like how much dialogue versus how much. Yeah. You know, it's stage a really well-written uh, screenplay page. I mean, you can almost—it it feels like you're watching a movie. Totally, in a sense. and you're giving, and, and that's the and that's the great trick is to try and deliver as much of the film with as little on the page as possible. From my point of view, you know, I love to try and get the balance so that you never feel like either you're putting an audience in a visual straitjacket, but neither are you kind of overburdening them with an image that they have to follow. You know yeah. that you want to. Do you like very short lines as opposed to sort of big paragraphs of uh, some know, writers? Or I don't know. I mean, you know, Stephen Jeffries, who's a great playwright in London, always said you have to earn your monologue, and I think about that quite a lot. And then, you know, I think about the bits things that people have told me along the way. You know, like take out every th- other third, take out every third line. You know, and see what happens. And sometimes that's a, just a really great trick to put air into a scene. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, I think. But even so, when you're like describing something, when you do it like one line. No, no, I just just in dialogue terms, I would oh, do it. Okay. Just in dialogue terms. You know, every if you take out every third line, it sort of suddenly kind of fuck up the. I don't rhythm even have that. Yeah, yeah, the rhythm, and that's quite good. So, I, you know, there there are those tricks you do for yourself, but but um, I think it, I don't think there's any one rule. But personally. Sometimes people talk a lot. Some, most of most of real drama happens when people are saying very little, or it's all underneath the line, you know. So, yeah. it, it's just about counterpoint for me. It's about if you're going to have that big speech, then make sure you've had enough air in it. I mean, you know, I love Eric, Aaron Sorkin's work. I mean, there must be more pages on that, on that dialogue than in any other script. Yeah, you know? it's funny so, when he was working with David Fincher. I think he told David Fincher to like um, do like you know a page is usually a minute, but he said you know do a page in forty seconds. 
yeah. sort of like sped up the totally, pace. Totally, totally. Uh, yeah, and that, you know, I just watched Steve Jobs and it's like lightning, some of that stuff. I mean, you you know, my intellect is, is fighting hard to keep up. You know, he's... And, and I think he's brilliant. So, yeah. you know, Sorry, I think... Sorry, theatre too. Well, you know, <laughs> theatre's a great place because yeah. no one censors you and it's a great place to find your voice and it gives you a swagger that you need to hold on to through the brutal and kind of diminishing world of, you know, being a film writer because it can beat you it can beat a lot of writers senseless and make them lose their voice. So, you know, in a way that's kind of like what I love about Sorkin is his flourish and his two fingers up to, to the world. You know, he feels like a rebel amongst a kind of, um, you know, a, a, a profession which is traditionally told to be seen and not heard, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm quite admiring of him. Yeah. No, he's incredible, incredible voice throughout all of his films. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah. That's I mean, true. I'm a big fan of him on TV, actually. That's where I really think he's The shy. West Wing. Yeah. I love The West Wing. I really enjoyed The Newsroom, actually, for all its you know faults. I really enjoyed it. Um, studio. Oh, Studio 60. Yeah, it was great. I love great. the I, show, only one season. Yeah, but. yeah. I know, I, I take comfort from that when my show was axed after the second season. I always think, well, Aaron Sorkin got axed <laughs> after the first, you know? Yeah, uh, Sports Night, too. Love yeah, I didn't, I've never seen Sports Night, actually. Yeah, no, I highly recommend that. Okay. It's like a half hour. It's kind of like MASH, where it's sort of like a comedy Was drama. that quite early on? I'm sorry? Was that quite early on, or was it recent? Uh, I think it was like sort of around the West Wing time. Okay. Like he'd left the West Wing, and then he... Had to do something yeah. for that, that period when he was so busy doing 20 other things as well. Yeah. I was curious, what is the difference between working in the United States versus working in England? Do you see any in terms of the studios, the producers here versus versus there? Um, I think American studios struggle to deliver bad news. I think Britain were much more brutal with each other. We, you know, I don't know whether it's that people are pretty direct when you get notes. Over here, it's I feel like it's harder to get a direct note I mean I you know honestly I have not done a lot of work over here I think it looks like I have because a lot of American you know producers have come on board but most of my film certainly my film work has been um, UK based and in fact we haven't taken any writing assignments no I am now actually I've just done I'm just taking on Ashley's War with Pacific um, Standard uh, which is Bruner Papadrea and Reese Witherspoon, which is an adaptation of Ashley's War, which um, about Ashley White, the first um, female soldier to go to Afghanistan, gain intelligence from Afghan women, and so, and that so far has been a complete delight. So, but I haven't, no, I haven't done. I've never worked beyond the studio. <coughs> I've been working with Scott Rudin all the last year, doing Little House on the Prairie, which. An adaptation again, which was relentless, but which I really, really enjoyed because he's just—I mean, he's just like one of the most intelligent men I've worked with in, in, in the film industry. Yeah, he's one of the great producers. Who sort of has he's a extraordinary. Kind of a and, he's know. like, it's like he takes a nickel and pops open a kind of coke bottle of in terms of storytelling. You just think, I don't know where I'm going here, and he'll come in with one very simple kind of note. You can see he's clicked his way over. Very, he's sort of. And it just opens up the whole film. So he's yeah. he's I think he's a really he a really 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 clever man. Yeah, and so again, his love is theatre. Uh, Sorry. All the filmmakers that he's worked with. Oh, I mean, you know, sitting in his office is pretty bloody daunting. You know, yeah. when you look at the posters on his wall. I mean, actually, the one that daunts me the most is the School of Rock because I love that oh, movie. Oh, Richard Linklater, yeah. <laughs> I just love that movie so much, and I'm always like, oh god. 
I'll never write a school of rock. But um, I'll never write a school of rock, it should also be said. I'll never get to write something as brilliant and as commercial as that. But um, I wish I could. But um, he, yeah, great. So I don't know, my experience has been pretty good so far, but I haven't done that. Um, I haven't done that big sort of writer for hire thing. You know, I haven't done it. Um, but I'm always open to offers. But I just haven't <laughs> done it. I just, I, I, I just, I don't know how good I am at that. You know. Yeah, I'm yeah. curious. In Suffragette, is there any moment that you feel that was really elevated beyond your expectations when you saw the final film? Um, I don't think I realised the impact of Emily Wilding Davison's um, death at the end. Just the sheer shock of the horse hitting her and. That was a really interesting experience, actually, because very recently in the UK they did um, a documentary about that about that day, and what was extraordinary is they used CGI oh, to recreate it wow. to recreate it, compute, wow. and so they could actually see based on looking at alpaca footage where the horse hit her and what she was actually trying to do, and so and that and actually the recreate that became very informative when they recreated that moment, and so the impact of that really shook me. Um, I saw several years ago, I, I was standing on a tube and a girl jumped in front of a tube in front of me. And, you witnessed and, that? Yeah, I witnessed it. Oh. And, and that moment somehow feels connected to the Emily Wilding Davison moment, the shock of that. And when I watched that, it, I'm rem- I, I don't think when I wrote it, I sort of connected those two moments. But it was yeah. both times, it's the shock and the noise and the slap is so loud. And I think the mm. film does that. Yeah. And then the sort of slightly surreal going into silence after it's almost like it hasn't happened it's like there's something well, it's, bizarre it's, it's, it's almost like your, your, yeah. your brain stops processing and everything goes out of body and I really feel like the film captures that and, and also you know it was a huge sequence and although Sarah you know had, has made Brick Lane which had a certain you know had a big riot, um, big march in it I, I it was it was the biggest you know the film has several big sequences it has the rally it has the Oxford Street moment it has you know um the bombing sequence and it has that sequence at the end and yeah. that was that sequence and being there that day and looking at you know the 400 extras and my little girl is one of the extras in the film and I found I was sort of so absorbed with that that it was only when I actually watched at the end the impact of that and realising how shocking it would have been at that time seeing that you know it was such an extraordinary I mean in, in any means it was an, it's an yeah. unusual thing to happen but certainly that time where the, those things well, especially since then there were there wasn't so much media where now I think we see violence so much on television yeah. the news and movies yeah exactly and, and, and actually you're right you know one of the things the biggest things we're dealing with is in this 21st century digital age is that we can see the most horrific things 24 hours a day and I think we're all kind of so psychically shaken and yeah. sort of to a certain degree degree essentially anaesthetized because we can't almost take any more that it it I still find that moment quite shocking in the film. More so even than the force feeding, I find that moment very shocking and very um sad. And you know what was interesting in the mo what was interesting about that is that she did it just on the bend where all the cameras would have been. So it was also about the suffragette movement being very engaged with the political message of what they were doing and how that would travel and the essentiality of that travelling is that a word? of that travelling across the world so yeah. um, it's it's it, it's sort of something about something very kind of personal and painful suddenly becoming a point of political change yeah. and historical a, a moment in history at the same time and I you know Sarah and I have gone to the women's library and I've held her little purse that she was carrying that day and it's 
you know, when you see that little purse and it's got a little coin in it and a stamp in it and she knew that she had a stamp in it and a card, I think, because she knew that she might be arrested after this, so she needed a stamp to let her family know where she was, you know. Um, and a return ticket, which everyone has always seen as a sign that she didn't mean to do it, but actually the return sh- ticket would have been the cheaper option, so she may well have bought it anyway. Yeah. Um, but when you see that little purse, it's very, very moving because it's a real thing. And so the kind of... Uh, that's Yeah, I find that still quite moving in the movie. Yeah. Really. Just watching the movie, especially at the end, it was mm. interesting to see sort of, or just me, it came to mind. Do you think that... You know the way you know women's rights and everything. Do you think that's been pushed forward more in Europe and in England than it has here? I, Do you think I'm England and Europe are sort of ahead, in a sense? You know, I'm just trying to gauge it? the climate. You know, I, yeah. you know, America feels like several countries, so I'm always trying to ascertain what's going on here. And you know, certainly at a time where it feels like there is such a lot of racial tension in 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 the um, U.S. You know, and I've. You know, I, I was in Virginia a few months ago, and I could feel it there, and then North Carolina, and I was really shocked, because of my interpretation of America has always been mm-hmm. LA and New York, you know, which of course I realize is not America in the way that the rest <laughs> is, you know. Yeah. Um, but certainly I think, you know, the six years it's taken us to make this movie, there's just been this incredible global and growing um, political activism. Um, with regard to female equality and I think that's in part because we live in the digital age where we're seeing you know, appalling examples of, of gender equality across the world from you know, the stoning of women in the Middle East through to you know, a group of schoolgirls being Chibok schoolgirls being taken in by Boko Haram through to you know, women being raped into India through to you know, girls having cat fights in a high school in Dalston you know <laughs> You know, we're seeing examples of kind of women pitching against each other and women having kind of being abused. And I think the film, I think globally, I hope, will connect whether that is different or whether we have a, a kind of a, a different kind of conscience in, in, in Europe. I'm not sure. Um, you know, certainly I think we're very connected to what's been going on in Ukraine and Russia and we're connect you know yeah. we, we're you know we're seeing mass migration at the moment happening which is in itself creating you know and exposing and becoming the focus in the UK but I don't know I mean I'm trying to I'm trying to assess it over here because I can't quite tell but I mean certainly the statistics ring out in the Hollywood film industry in the UK film industry which is you know uh, there is a you know four percent of films last year were made by women you know slightly more were written by women in the UK and you know, in the UK, 70% of women hold places in the boardroom. You know, we have 66,000 women who've experienced FGM in the UK, you know, so it's a huge number, and I don't think those statistics are just UK or European-based. I'm sure they must translate over here, but I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it? Do you think there's a, there's a kind of growing female feminism and activism in, in the US? Or certainly when you've got Hillary Clinton running for yeah. president, that must be awakening certainly. But then at the same time, it's sort of someone who's already sort of established in power and has a whole, with, yeah. who also has a following. So, um, I don't know, it's interesting. Just I've always just had this envision of sort of, you know, Europe and in general sort of being ahead of the curve and everything, you know, gay yeah. rights, women's rights, everything. But then again, you know, there's, I guess there's sort of, Racism and gender equality everywhere in general. That I mean, we really have huge racial conjecture. What we yeah. don't, what we don't, and we certainly have huge issues with our police force and and race in the UK. But what we don't have is is people killing each other and shooting each other. And we don't have, 
we don't have you know black men being shot in custody or on the street you know we don't have that level of of racism that you have yeah. <laughs> you know or, or if we have it we just don't have it in the to the extent that you have but it certainly goes on in the UK I mean you know we had a Michael Duggar was shot by police a few you know a couple of years ago in the UK and that you know that 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 caused a huge stir but but there is something other going on in the U.S. at the moment, which is really, really, really unsettling. Well, these random acts of violence, the gun violence, especially the in movie gun theaters gun. and everywhere. I mean, it's it's you know, it's terrifying. It's terrifying, but also you know, you just I mean, your gun laws over here are just you know, from a British point of view, are effing crazy. I mean, yeah. we just don't get it. I mean, it's it was I mean, a new no background you know, checks on people. So it's like <laughs> yeah, and you know, the, you know, the argument that it's written into your constitution and unwrite it. I mean, you know, yeah. it's it's just a basic, you know, it's it's just bizarre. I mean, but it goes right back to history. It goes right back to the fact that you know you're right. You know, America arrived with guns, didn't it? I mean, you know, it has a whole other thing going yeah. on. But but that's not to say we don't have racism, we don't have violence against the black, huge violence against the black community in the UK because we do. So. And whether that's a bigger preoccupation at the moment, but what was been interesting about the film is, you know, we we've done a number of Q and A's in New York and London, and one of the things that was very moving is um, an American Jamaican woman stood up and said, you know, it really is connected with me. It really makes, you know, I, we see particularly the the levels of police surveillance and police violence. She said that really connects to what's going on for us over here and Black Lives Matters. And so, you know, I hope that the film works about just basic inequality anyway, and I hope it has resonance. Um, I don't know if we're ahead of the curve, and I don't have a kind of a good, quick answer for that. Or you know, I I, I don't know, but I just what I see is a growing a growing female activism and a, a a comfort with women taking on board the notion of feminism and placing absolutes and men actually because this is a yeah well, I think you know, men embracing feminism yeah. is important too. Yeah, and also we've seen changes, aren't we? Yeah. You know, we you know we're seeing men bring up children now. We're seeing you know, men stay at home and be the stay-at-home fathers, you know, that's becoming much more of a norm, and as it should be, you know, it should be a choice. And so, yeah, yeah well, I definitely think, you know, we know that, that there is that going on, but, but, you know, but one of the other things I think we have is huge uh, political apathy, certainly, you know, as we face a second term of a Conservative government in the UK and kind of obliteration of the Labour Party, and so there are, you know, and everyone sees the great, great, great kind of white hope as Jeremy, Corbyn, who's just taken over as the new head of the Labour Party, but ultimately, I think that people, and particularly young people, and particularly young women, don't believe in the power of their vote to change policy. And I hope the film—that's what the film does—is engages. And at a time where you are facing next year your own, yeah. you know, set of elections, um, I hope it. What it does is say, you know, you didn't get the vote in this country until 1920. You know. But you've got it ahead of us, yeah. so use it. It's bizarre you know, to think that that I mean, it's like not even like hundred years ago that that. Well, yeah, and still, I think you know the one that everyone. Still so behind in a sense. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, and also you know you had a you know Elizabeth Cady Stanton and you had Susan Suzanne B Anthony. You know, you had you had an incredible group. You had an incredible suffragette movement. What was fascinating about your movement is it ran hand in hand with the abolitionist movement and the civil rights movement, and it had such diversity in it. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, that's you know, I think that's also been interesting in the Q and A's is that there have been so many American women and get you know re-engaging with their own suffrage history, which you know informed it. What it didn't have is the militant activism that we had in the UK. So, yeah, maybe we were ahead of the curve in that yeah. way. You know, we were we were firebombing. You know, but maybe yeah. the fact you got your the vote before us meant that you know 
you got, you know, I mean, the, I think Wyoming was 1869, yours was state by state, which actually, and it was very well organized, yeah. each state. The same thing, there. I mean, the civil rights movement with the black population being able to vote, it was also kind of state by, you know. State by state, state, by state which yeah. again, is, in a way, is a sort of, you know, when you have a whole country waiting, you know, which is which the UK did, you know, they had 50 years of peaceful protest, then I'm sure that's what bred and blew up the militant activism towards the end.